Will you please stand as we read from the word of our Lord? Scripture today comes from the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand there looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. May the Lord add his blessing to this reading of this portion of his holy word. You may be seated. Today's topic is understanding the end times. Before we get into the future, let's talk about briefly the present. We are currently in the church age. Jesus Christ came. He died as a payment for our sin. He rose again and ascended into heaven. And the relationship that we have with him now is a powerful one. It's a beautiful picture of intimacy because he speaks of us as being his heavenly bride. It's like God the Father is the father of the groom, Jesus Christ, and we are the bride and we're waiting for him to come get us. We're here on earth, he's in heaven, and he's going to come to us and get us and take us back to his home. It's a beautiful picture of what we have to expect. Now, all Christians have agreed that Christ is coming back. That much we agree on. But the details, sometimes we disagree on. I'm going to offer an olive branch here and say, I'm not so concerned that you agree with me on every particular detail. As long as we agree that Christ is coming back, that's the main thing. Why wouldn't I make a big deal about this? Well, because it's not a salvation issue. Um, believing differently than I do on end-time events won't send you to Hades. In fact, when we disagree, that drives us into the Scriptures. And we can get together, we can go have a cup of coffee, and we can talk about what God is going to do, and we can look into the Scriptures and find out what He has told us. And I think that's a beautiful thing because it drives us to him. It drives us to his word. Stu read 
from the book of Acts, chapter 1, that talks about his return. And I want to take just a portion of that and highlight it again. Verse 6. Then they, the disciples, gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to you, it is not for you to know the times or dates. Let me say that again. It is not for you to know the times or the dates. Now, say that with me. It is not for you to know the times or the dates. Every time I look and see somebody trying to predict, well, Christ is going to come back this September 3rd at 3.30 in the What did God say? It's not for you to know the times or the dates. I think we get that. Let's continue. The times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men, probably angels, dressed in white, stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said. Why do you stand here looking up into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go to heaven. Friends, the next event on God's timeline is the rapture. The rapture. Let's look at that. Jesus revealed it for the first time in John chapter 14, where he said to his disciples, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Now, what is that place? It's the Father's house. Where does the Father abide? Where is God? He's in heaven. Where is Christ now? He's in heaven. He's there. And he's going to prepare a place for us. Now, friends, we spend all sorts of time trying to make this a better place. And I understand that. That's not always wrong. But think about it. We dwell here for a little while. We will dwell with Christ forever. Let's be thinking more about that place because that really is the more important.
Well, what's next on his calendar? He says, I will come back. Jesus is not going to stay in heaven forever. He's going to come back to earth. And what happens then? Take you, I will take you to be with me, he says, that you also may be where I am. So when he comes, we go to be with him at the Father's house. It's a picture that you see elsewhere, including the Old Testament scriptures, where the Father is in his home and he sends the Son, and the Son has a great entourage, you know, chariots, and usually at night, coming with lights and lanterns, and it's a big procession, and it's well lit, and so it makes a dramatic entry. Now, I know here, when we have weddings, who's the focus on? The bride, right. She's dressed in white. She walks down the aisle. You know, as soon as she enters the the music and everybody turns to look at her. But Christ is our heavenly bridegroom and following the Old Testament pattern, the focus will be on him. He will come back and he will retrieve his bride to take her, that's us, to the father's house. What a glorious thing. We see it again in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, which gives more information about this event. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope talks about being uninformed about those who sleep in death. Jesus told his followers he was coming back and would take them to be with him in heaven. But now, a generation later, some people in Christ have passed away. Some of their family members have died. Some friends have passed away. And they knew that they were anticipating this event that was always a hope of theirs. But now, what about Aunt Millie? She's passed away. Does that mean that she will miss this great event? Is she going to miss out? And Paul answers that question. Verse 14, For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. So what about Aunt Millie? She's coming back. She's not going to miss this event. She's going to get to be there. She's coming with Jesus when he comes. And the same is true for other believers who have passed on. Your family, your friends, they're coming back. Verse 15. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. So Aunt Millie's coming back, and we'll experience this together all at once. Verse 16, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with a trumpet call of God. Sounds dramatic, doesn't it? Sounds like this is an event. And the dead in Christ, those are not those that are asleep in the service. 
Okay. The dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are still in our physical bodies will be resurrected. That's a beautiful thing. We see this in verse 17. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so will we be with the Lord forever. Amen. Let's focus on that word, our words, caught up. You know, some people say, well, you're talking about the rapture. The, the word rapture is not in the Bible. And that's true. It's not in the Bible. But the word Bible is not in the Bible either. <laughs> we believe in that. Actually, the word rapture, in a sense, is in the Bible. Our word rapture comes from the Latin. And remember, this was written originally in Greek, and then it was translated into Latin. And it's the word rapturo. So, rapture, the word, really is in the Bible. It's just in the Latin Bible. But the concept is there. Rapture means the same thing as the Greek word, harpazo. It means to be caught up, to be snatched away. It's like God reaches down and snatches us. Tommy Ice calls it the great snatch. And finally, we see the same thing. Oh, before I say that, Paul concludes with, therefore, encourage one another with these words. You may be going through hard times. Lots of people are going through hard times. It's real. But there's hope because this is not all there ever will be. It's going to get good. In fact, it's going to get great. We have something to look forward to, to be, to be caught up with Jesus Christ, to be given a new body, a resurrected body like his, and to enjoy life in the fullness that he intends for us. That is something to look forward to. That's something that will strengthen us. That is something that will help us get through hard days and be encouraged. That's what God intends by revealing this. We see this finally again in Philippians 3. We're told to wait for this coming. Verse 20, but our citizenship is in where? Heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. I love that. He's going to transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. The key thing about the rapture is that it is a resurrection of earthly bodies. God will transform us. Our weak bodies subject to frailties, disease, and death will be transformed to give it life and power and health and enjoyment forever.
I'd make that trade. <laughs> well, we have seen the good news about Christ coming back. But after the rapture comes some bad news about the Antichrist. In some circles, you hear a lot of talk about the Antichrist. What is the Antichrist? Well, let me read 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. John is speaking to Christians. Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists are here. There in John's day, he speaks about Antichrist, singular, who is yet future, and he speaks about Antichrists who are present in his day. Let's focus on the Antichrist, the one who's coming in the future. He has many names. He's called the Beast in Revelation, the Little Horn in Daniel, the Man of Sin in 2 Thessalonians. When God brings the church age to a close, Satan has a man and a plan. The Antichrist is a man. He will start small. That's why he's called a little horn. But he will grow in influence and power. People will see him as a game changer. They'll be drawn to him. He'll have the charisma of the greatest politician and speaker. He's probably European because the book of Daniel describes him as coming out of a revived form of the old Roman Empire. He will appear to be a great ambassador who can do what no other politician has been able to do, bring peace to the Middle East. He will offer Israel a covenant, a contract that will last seven years. And because they look to him as sort of like their savior, someone who is able to bring peace to them, they will agree to his terms. And they'll sign the contract. In Revelation 13, we see the Antichrist's ultimate goals. First, a one-world government. We talk about that today. Uh, uh, there are people who have the, the World Economic Forum. Klaus Schwab, for example, for decades has been proposing what we need is to have a world government in order to solve all of our problems. If we'll just create a world government, everything will be fine. Well, who's going to be in charge of this world government? Satan's man, Antichrist. And next, there will be a one world religion. Who will be in charge of that? The Antichrist. And he'll have kind of a lieutenant. He's called the false prophet. You sense the religious terminology there. And this false prophet will cause people, small and great, to worship the Antichrist. And then finally, he'll have a one world economy. Who's in charge of that? Antichrist. That's right. 
And so his, uh, his uh, chief guy, the false prophet, causes people to take the mark of the beast, which we talk about 666, on either their hand or their forehead. And they can't buy or sell unless they have this mark. You know, way back when this was written, I, who could imagine ways that we could do this now? Debbie and I went out to a restaurant last night. You know what we saw as we got to the cash register? This is a cashless company. We don't use cash. You can't buy with cash. You have to have a number now. Now, we're not there yet. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying the things are being put in place that make, make this both possible and very believable. So this man has a plan, but God, too, has a plan. And now that his bride, the church, has been removed, she's in heaven, we're there with him, he proceeds to judge mankind. And there's a series of judgments over the next seven years. The signing of the covenant with Israel signals the beginning of a time known as the, tri <clears throat> as the tribulation. God will begin to judge the earth for sin and rebellion and for rejecting his son and persecuting his people. Now, Christ is seen as initiating the coming events. In Revelation 6, there are seven seals. These seals, likely wax poured on parchment, a rolled-up document, these seals represent seven judgments. Tony Evans describes it this way. The scroll is like a title deed to the earth. It depicts God's ownership of all creation and right to hold accountable those who misuse it and thus dishonor him. Through judgment administered by Jesus, God once again will lay claim to his creation, which was plunged into sin by humanity. The first seal is broken. A mysterious rider comes forth on a white horse. Revelation chapter 6 reads this way. I watched, John says, as the lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, come. I looked and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow and was given a crown and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. Many believe that this is an introduction to the Antichrist. The second seal brings a red horse, and peace is taken from the earth. Red is emblematic of bloodshed that comes with war. Other seals bring other problems to the earth. The next seal is broken, and you see economic problems and failure, intense inflation. Then the next one, death. The next one, martyrs appear in heaven. The next one, a violent earthquake. And number seven, brings seven angels with a new series of judgments. 
Then in chapter 7, and I love it that God breaks it up. He talks about earth. He'll talk about heaven. He'll also break it up by talking about the good things that he's doing. And chapter 7 is much like that. In chapter 7, there are 144,000 Jewish people sealed by God. Having come to faith in Christ, much like the Apostle Paul, they share the gospel of faith in Christ to a desperate world. Many throughout the globe, both Jew and Gentile, will come to faith. God wants everyone to know that even amid judgment, he offers mercy, he offers salvation, and he offers pardon. Along with that, the opportunity to turn from sin. This brings us to chapter 8 in Revelation. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. You can sense the drama in this period. Silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets now were given to them. So the seventh seal is broken to bring forth the next round of judgments, which also number seven. And these are often called the judgment of thirds. With the first trumpet, a third of the earth was burned up. Picture a gigantic firestorm in which a third of the trees are burned up. With the second trumpet, something like a giant mountain ablaze with fire was hurled into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood. And a third of the living creatures in the sea died. And a third of the ships were destroyed. These judgments on lost mankind continue, but they refuse to repent. They harden their hearts, even in the face of all these trials. So in Revelation 16, we come to the bowl judgments, the final series of seven. Seven bowls, also translated cups, are a set of plagues mentioned in Revelation 16. Seven angels are given seven bowls of God's wrath, each consisting of judgments full of the wrath of God. These seven bowls of God's wrath are poured out on the wicked and the followers of Antichrist. The sixth bowl judgment brings us to what the Bible calls Armageddon. I trust you've heard about that. Let me first say that this, don't associate this with movies that you have seen. <laughs> Hollywood seldom gets it right. The sixth bowl results in the Euphrates River, this great massive river that flows through Babylon or flows by Babylon and Iran and Iraq. It dries up, and it clears the way for kings and armies to come from the east, most likely talking about um, Iran and Iraq, which are the kings of the east in the Bible. When the Euphrates dries up, it opens this travel route for the armies of the east to converge on the Middle East with forces of the Antichrist who are already there and other world armies all converging on Israel. Satan employs 
uh, deceitful spirits who go out throughout the world, deceiving people, causing them to come and do his bidding. We read in Revelation 16, 16, and they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har-Mageddon. The NIV, <clears throat> NIV reads this way, then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Armageddon is the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew phrase Har Megiddo, meaning the Mount of Megiddo or the Hill of Megiddo. It is a place in northern Israel today. I've been on that mountain and it is overlooking a valley, a vast, vast valley. It's a plain with a lot of farming, so it's very level. The perfect staging ground for the armies of the east and the armies of the west to converge and plan an attack on Israel. What happens then? The second coming of Christ, which is different than the rapture. We see this in Revelation 19. I saw in heaven standing open. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. So who, who is this rider? Who is the rider who is faithful and true? Christ. That's him. He is faithful and true, and he judges in truth. His eyes are like a blazing fire. And on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on them that no one knows but himself. And then verse 13 continues this description of Christ. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. And his name is the word of God. So Jesus rides a white horse, the Roman symbol of victory. Christ's main task in returning to earth is making war against the enemies of God. You know, when he came the first time, he was so gentle that he wouldn't even crush a, a reed that he stepped on. But now his disposition is different because the first time he came to save, he didn't come to judge. But now, thousands of years later, people have had a chance to trust in Christ, to hear the gospel, those that have rejected it are left on earth. And he now comes to judge fairly and with justice. Verse 14, the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth with a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Earlier, Christ appeared in the clouds for his saints, and the church is gathered up and taken back to heaven, removed from the earth, freeing God to pour out his wrath on unbelievers at that time. And he has another purpose as well. Israel is his beloved. And even though currently they don't, on the whole, have a faith in Christ, 
he will bring them to faith. There are numerous places in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, that talk about them coming back to him. God has always planned for Israel to repent. And in Romans chapter 11, we read that someday all Israel will be saved. It'll be a glorious time when God's people turn back to him. Well, like early church fathers, I believe in a literal earthly kingdom. This is described in Revelation chapter 20. This will be new to some, but it's not new to the church of Christ. For the first two centuries, the 100s, the 200s, church leaders like Barnabas, Polycarp, Papias, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, and Tertullian taught about Christ's kingdom from Revelation 20 and other places, which speak of a thousand-year glorious reign of Christ on earth. Here it is. John speaking. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore. Wouldn't that be a great thing? I mean, we see all kinds of deception today. Spiritual deception. Satan is the author of that. But someday he will be bound to keep the nations from being deceived anymore from him until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. So this will be a glorious time on earth when Satan is bound and restricted, taken away from this earthly realm and unable to put his influence upon kings, on politics, on leaders, on world events. He won't be able to touch us. A beautiful thing. Something else would be wonderful. I saw thrones, John continues, on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his false image and had not received the mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Verse 6, blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. Second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Yeah, wow, it's going to be great. Those who have followed Christ during the seven-year tribulation, those who have staked their lives at risk, and some have paid the ultimate price, God is going to reward them. Naturally, he would do that. And part of the reign of Christ will be as a reward to them. They'll get to participate 
in government with Christ. After all, if you've got a king, you've got to have ministers and servants and people to serve, right? In different levels. They will fill that role because they have earned the right by being faithful to him. Now, earlier in Revelation, the right to reign with Christ is also offered to the church. And I think it's important for us to remember that even though we're not saved by our good works, our good works are important because we will be before Christ and he will evaluate our good works in order to reward us, not to be saved, not to enter heaven, but because God loves us and appreciates the fact we've been faithful to Christ, he will reward us accordingly. That's a motivation for us to live for him. Next, we see the final rebellion. There will be a final test of humanity. Initially, at the start of Christ's rule, all will be believers, but they will have children, and some will grow up and yet never believe or follow Christ. At the end of a thousand years, Satan will be released. Why? Just to prove one last time that even when Satan is gone and there's no influence, humanity still falls short. People will follow Satan instead of Christ. Many follow him and stage an attack on Christ and his people, and there they will be judged. And then we come to the eternal state. Revelation 21 and 22, the end of the Bible. John said, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Along with that, every place, every government has to have a capital city, right? And that's called the New Jerusalem. It's an eternal city coming down to earth from the clouds. Revelation 21. Then I saw the holy city, the New Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I saw a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying, or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Sounds great, doesn't it? God's dwelling finally is with man. When God created this world, what did he intend? For us to be able to dwell with him. What prevented us from being able to do that? Sin. Now he has dealt with sin and he has removed it. He, and we will be able to enjoy his presence forever. He describes it as a city that had a massive wall with 12 gates, with 12 angels at the gates. The building materials will include the street of gold, that famous street. There'll be no temple. In contrast to the millennium, which has a temple, because God and Jesus are the temple now. No temple is in the new Jerusalem because 
A representation of God's presence is not necessary. God will be present there. There we find the river of life and the tree of life. Bearing fruit. One of the things we will do in heaven is eat. We have resurrected bodies and we are able to enjoy food. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more curse. 22 verse 3 says, And there shall be no more curse. But the throne of God and the Lamb of God shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. Are we going to just float around on clouds in heaven? No. We'll be busy serving Jesus Christ. What a wonderful thing. Finally, they, God's people, will reign forever and ever. Sounds good, doesn't it? Well, let's review a chart. Dick Emery asked for a chart, so Dick, this is for you. In this chart, you see the bar up ahead, up on the top, in blue. That's heaven. Now you see below that, a bar broken up into different colors. That's what's happening on earth. So let's start on earth and we'll go to heaven and back and forth. The first little small blue segment is the Old Testament, which goes from creation all the way up to 33 AD, the year that Christ was crucified. Weeks later, the church was born, Acts chapter 2. And uh, that continues on to the present. That's the age we're in right now. We're waiting for that to close out with the rapture when we are caught up to be with him in heaven. He will appear in the skies, we go be with him, and we all return to heaven. Now that the church is gone, believers have been removed from the earth, only those who have rejected God, rejected Christ, rejected his righteousness. There will be seven years of tribulation. It's kind of described sometimes as evil burning itself out. At the end of that tribulation, Christ, who is with us in heaven, will return at Armageddon and will come down, this time not merely appearing in the skies. This time he will touch down on the earth to remain there. And he will set up his kingdom, the millennium. That just simply means thousand years. At the end of the millennium, there will be the great white throne to judge all unbelievers of all time. And heaven and earth will be remade, recreated righteously. All of the old remnants of sin taken away. And then we enter into eternity. Enjoy God's presence forever. Big question. When? That's what the disciples asked Jesus. When, Jesus? You may be familiar with Sheriff Taylor and Opie. Pa, when is Jesus coming back? I don't rightly know, Opie. You see, we're not on the planning committee. We're on the welcoming committee. (laughs) We don't know when he's coming back, but he urges us to be ready, to be watching for him. Final thought, 
Why? Why does God reveal portions of our future? I think there are two main reasons. One is to give us hope. Friends, we win. Sometimes it may not seem like we're winning right now. But we're on the winning team. Because we have the best coach. And we have the star player, Jesus Christ. We win. Be encouraged with that. And secondly, we are told this to purify our lives. God has not called us to uncleanness, but to holiness. If we know that Christ is coming back, and we do, that motivates us to live righteously. What a great encouragement we have. Father God, we thank you for the word of God. You have spent a great amount of time revealing yourself to us and along with that, your plan, including our future. And Father, we thank you that you've not left us in the dark. You haven't told us the time, but you have told us what will happen. We honor you, Father, and we thank you for that. Lord, may all of the people of God be encouraged with your revelation. And we praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Pastor Mark.